Then I can go over here and I hit this button. It, uh, it plays the intro music. You guys like that, right? It's good. I like that intro music. for this October 30th, 2023 being the current year. Happy Halloween Eve, ladies and gentlemen. Fine members in the gender binary. This is Stage 1, Episode 32, Narrow Nationalism, I titled this today. Uh, you know, I recently, I mentioned this uh, briefly on another show, that I had uh, occasion to view a speech by an Australian gentleman by the name of Joel Davis, which he gave at a meeting of the Patriotic Alternative of the United Kingdom. <coughs> You can find the speech in full on their website, and it is linked in the show notes today for uh, Stage 1, Episode 32. And I encourage the listener to give it their full consideration so that I cannot be accused of taking the man out of context because I found the talk more than a little bit disagreeable. And I mean here to use it as an example to describe a broader pathology plaguing what has been called the dissident right. In that vein, I'll here note that I have not yet invited Mr. Davis to be on the show, but that I am by no means averse to discussing this subject with him at a later date. Mr. Davis is hardly alone in his view that race is the central question of our politics. To whatever extent this may be an error, you could easily forgive a man for making it, given the hysteria surrounding the subject in our discourse these days. Mr. Davis is, however, altogether less forgiving of those who disagree with this view, describing, for example, Germans who do not vote for AFD, the alternative for Germany, or alternative for Deutschland, as is, as, quote, politically retarded, along with the rest of the masses, whom he frequently describes in derisive terms as stupid, without much effort to understand or articulate their motives for who they vote for. Met with this realization that the political parties he supports do not win elections, Mr. Davis seeks different and altogether less precise measurements of political success. His talk was titled Activist Politics and White Advocacy, and the amazing Joel Davis, as he was described, was introduced by the presenter as, quote, an identitarian commentator and activist with a focus on white advocacy and political strategy. As he begins the talk himself, he says he states that he is there to share his thoughts on the subject of political strategy that have evolved for him over the last few years. But if Mr. Davis has a focus on political strategy, it was not presented during this talk. Mr. Davis would go on to make no subtle suggestion that electoral politics was a futile endeavor, though he was careful to state that it is, quote, not bad. He specifically states that, quote, unless we can raise billions of dollars, 
White advocates cannot compete in this realm. He describes activism as a different category of action, the purpose of which is to change what's popular, whereas electoralism, as he calls it, makes use of, in his words, leverages what is already popular. The flaws in this are many, some quite subtle, some quite glaring, none at all rare. To the extent the talk has value, there's value in the talk, I should, I should state. But among the values of the talk is that he's articulating some of these flaws that I've observed elsewhere in a manner more befitting response than some of the much less articulate um, hurling of insults and subterfuge commonly associated with the phenomenon that I observe here. Now, anticipating precisely such subterfuge, let us get a few things out of the way, because if we do not, and even quite likely though we do, our touching on this subject will incur the most predictable of responses from social media commentators who cannot show their faces in public and yet consider themselves quite the authority on how to change public opinion. Were we not to head them off, we could expect a word cloud of their comments to include the words Jew, Fed, Fox News, Mitt Romney, John McCain, No Wall, Cuck, Sellout, that sort of thing. So we might state up front that not all politically relevant activity directly pertains to the winning of the next election. As if that requires saying, which it shouldn't, but nothing goes without saying anymore, because we live in clown world. And in this, we encourage the listener to take note of the careful wording. Not all, as in some limited amount. Politically relevant activity, which is to say activity that has some bearing on politics, whether or not that is its intent. Directly pertains, which is to say if it is politically relevant, it necessarily pertains, though perhaps not directly, to the winning of the next election, this being, of course, quite loaded in that victory or defeat, this election or one subsequent, and, of course, the issue of elections itself are all addressed therein. We exclude here, for the purposes both practical, theoretical, and just a little bit legal, discussion of obtaining the powers of elected office without winning elections. Mr. Davis does not present himself as an advocate of violence, and whatever anyone else tells you post-politics is advocacy of violence. While some may theorize about the legitimacy of other means, it is as predictable as any given sunrise that the existing political system would violently resist any such means, and that the seeker of the power would either be destroyed by this or be compelled to take up arms himself. Since this is so very obvious, one must assume that he who advocates non-electoral answers has at least some awareness of this. So for this reason, we must note that, given the peril of such advocacy, it is not inconceivable that some have this as their aim and dare not say it aloud for strategic reasons and ultimately for fear of the consequences. The sober political analyst must assume much of what is said about wild-eyed political theories which downplay the importance of the next election actually understands this. We offer this as a mere footnote and not as an accusation against Mr. Davis. Our focus thus far on the next election is not an effort to be short-sighted, far from it. If today you lose a city council seat and in five years you rule the world, well, well played. That's fine, but the next election is ever-present. Generally speaking, there are no fewer than one a year in any given jurisdiction here in the United States. 
The longest one must ever wait is two years, given the schedule of U.S. House elections. For this reason, electioneering never actually ends. What we sometimes call election season is just that part of the perpetual process that becomes too loud for the average citizen to ignore. All that occurs within a society impacts that perpetual process. The election is just the means by which we delude ourselves into thinking we have solved our differences peacefully and thereby avoid more chaotic violence than that provided by the state. Every discussion at the dinner table, every word uttered on the news, every song played on the radio, every success in business, every criminal thrown in prison, every Facebook-like or algorithmic suppression on X impacts the general state of social affairs. Assuming for the sake of argument, though not as a matter of actual certainty, that our votes are counted honestly, that collective consciousness formed by all that has happened between one election and the next, and all the collective events and memories prior, are translated into votes which elect a government, and so this process continues in perpetuity. For this reason, it ought to go without saying, and it is conspicuous to the point one might describe as suspect, the frequency with which it is said these days that actions not aimed at electing a specific candidate to a specific office on a specific date have political relevance. Whether it is parents complaining at the PTA meeting or torches illuminating the campus of the University of Virginia— To the extent that any activity can be described as non-political, it is only to the extent that we do not perceive its political significance. We might further note that some of the most successful political activity escapes this very perception by design. Activity which is very political entirely too often parades as non-political activity be it because this activity is subversive and hides its political nature or because the participants may have no idea what they are doing. And this requires stating, sadly, because within the dissident right, when one calls attention to the centrality of elections in social affairs and their unavoidable significance, there emerges the most predictable, the pre- most predictable and repetitive of social media uproars, screaming oft-refuted talking points about everything from Republican failures to the merits of insurrection. But on this show, we say with what might be described as nauseating frequency that by the time election day rolls around, all of the important decisions have long since been made, both in terms of general cultural attitudes and as a consequence of partisan activity to determine who the candidates are. People who say silly things like, yeah, vote harder, huh? Demonstrate either their malice or their ignorance because no sane person suggests that one can increase or decrease the significance of showing up on election day to check a box. In many cases, it is true enough that a man's vote means nearly nothing. Notably, a Republican voting in a general presidential election in the state of New York, owing to the nature of the electoral college system, has no hope whatsoever of impacting the outcome of a presidential election with his vote on election day. This is not to say that he has no capacity to impact the election, of course. He can donate to the candidate. He can volunteer in a competitive state. He can promote the candidate or the candidate's narratives on social media. 
There is hardly any limit to what he can do outside of that single useless vote to impact the outcome of this contest. And of course, it is too often lost on those in the dissident right, either through ignorance or through intent, that a Republican primary voter, be he in New York or in Texas, has a very significant impact on who the candidate shall be by voting in the primary. He has all the more significance if he is involved with the Republican Party and engages in the sort of political activity that directs party resources and energy toward one candidate or another. And even in his capacity outside of the party, such as on social media, he has influence on the prevailing narratives within the party. This is of a certain sort just because he demonstrates that he is a supporter of the party's ideas. It is of a more significant sort. If he is a committeeman, it is all the more significant than this if he is the chair of the party within a given territory. His social status as it relates to the party is dictated in some part by his level of participation. And so if, say, the Republican Party in New York is fonder of Chris Christie than of Donald Trump, and his primary vote is unlikely to sway any delegates to Trump on account of this, his status as a committeeman or chair still conveys the significance of his position when he advocates for the candidate on those primary voters outside of his region, such as when he acts on social media. And so we proceed from here, hoping to have amply demonstrated that we are not politically retarded. We understand very well the thing that we will be predictably accused of failing to grasp. And since we do comprehend this, we do not dismiss the significance of what Mr. Davis calls activism. The construction of narratives, the spreading of ideas, the various social mechanisms by which political opinions go from unacceptable to debatable to respectable to obvious to no longer being political disputes at all because they are universally accepted. All of this occurs prior to the casting of ballots. The left has indeed mastered this art, as Mr. Davis notes during his talk. They have managed to dominate our country and most of the world, not because they are winning elections, but rather they are winning elections because they dominate our country and so much of the world. It's the other way around. The problem that we here aim to address is this idea that these are somehow separate categories of action that one is either involved in influencing elections or they involved in something other than this that is of political significance. The challenge we find with this train of thought is that it allows no measurement of success. And we're not accusing Mr. Davis of being a loser, but you can see how this appeals to losers and why So much of the belligerent nonsense that goes on on the Internet comes from people who are enthralled to this idea that their political strategy has no test of merit. It encourages failure and the failures we see so reliably in the dissident right and similar movements which have preceded it in the past are common and predictable results of this pathology, which is not new by any stretch of the imagination. Lacking patience and intensely seeking, lacking patience and intensely sensing 
the direness of circumstances, having consumed literature or otherwise been exposed to information doubting the merits of democracy, it becomes acceptable and even encouraged to act as if elections are somehow a separate or even irrelevant phenomenon from other sorts of political activity. In this mindset, the measurement of success is social approval from like-minded ideologues. When others do not join in the fun, they are dismissed as, to borrow Mr. Davis's wording, politically retarded. But let us be fair to Mr. Davis before we borrow this phrasing again and quote the statement in full. Now, I'm going to play some of the clips from the video for you as we go forward, but I'm just going to read this one to you. And by popularity, I mean it is, uh, you know, it's not just opinion polls. You know, we've had a recent opinion poll, I think, from Germany that said something like 70 to 80 percent of Germans are against mass immigration. But if you look at the parties these people vote for, I mean, this is including people who vote for leftist parties, you vote for centrist parties. If you're against mass immigration, why aren't you at least voting for the alternative for Deutschland? You know, the only party that's actually against it in Germany. So it's like, yes, people will tick boxes on opinion polls that they're against something, but they aren't actually politically conscious of even a very basic step of voting for the correct party to align with your belief. Or perhaps they care about mass immigration, but they care more about, I don't know, getting their taxes down. Or I don't know, even what goes through these people's heads. You know, the masses are frankly, whilst often sympathetic to our talking points, politically retarded. So Mr. Davis says, I don't know what goes through these people's heads. He speculates, you know, maybe it has something to do with taxes. And who cares about those? What does it matter if the government takes a tenth, a quarter, a third, a half, 75% of your income? Who cares about that? But he doesn't know what goes through the heads. And he says that as a consequence of him not knowing what they're thinking about, that they are politically retarded. He, a man purporting to speak on political strategy, has not the vaguest idea why people are voting in a particular way. Well, as a matter of fact, this is like the first thing a political strategist would want to know, as a matter of fact, right? If you want to impact, if you're strategizing about policy, you're like, people are not voting for us. Well, why not? He says maybe they are trying to get their taxes down. Well, that's an important data point. Maybe if they think that the AFD is going to raise their taxes or that for whatever other reason voting for the AFD is going to cause their taxes to be raised. Well, you know, if I was uh, working for the AFD and I hired a political strategist, I'd want to know if that was the case. And maybe I'd try to ensure the voters that that wouldn't happen. When he opens up the talk, he tells you what he's going to say. He tells you what his talk is based on. Here's what he says about that. Basically, what I'm going to discuss is just a basic collection of a few ideas around political strategy that have evolved for me in my time. You know, the past few years, engaging with a lot of white nationalist leaders around the world, kind of analyzing problems in different countries, discussing ideas with leaders. And, you know, so hopefully you can get something out of this. The basic ideas that... I think there's two core modes that you could really break down mass politics into. You could say there's activism and electoralism, end quote. Well, you know, no wonder he has no idea what's going through those people's heads, right? Instead of trying to understand that, instead of trying to understand what they're thinking about, what matters to them, 
He's been talking to white nationalist leaders around the world. He has been studying white nationalism. He has exhibited not the behavior of a political strategist, but of an ideologue. He has been studying things that interest him, that get his heart rate up, that inspire him. And he is not interested in what inspires or goes through the heads of those other people who he calls politically retarded. And so he finds himself entirely unfamiliar with this. Now, we would not suggest that Mr. Davis is politically retarded. He likely understands the issues of our day better than the average AFD voter, we speculate. And I'll note, that's all I can do is speculate because this is the first time I ever heard of Joel Davis and I have not made any effort other than watching this 25-minute video a couple of times to familiarize myself with his ideas. I don't know. But what he does not seem to understand, first and foremost, is like something that you actually don't require a political education to discern. You know, perhaps if you've been married for a very long time or you are not very ambitious in your love life or you are just so attractive that all the best women are tripping over themselves to catch your eye, you might know or maybe you have forgotten this. But, you know, for most of us, we can figure this out just from a little bit of dating experience, right? If you want to win over a woman... Like, of course, like you have to be confident of yourself. You have to be able to speak about the things that you know and what you believe and what interests you. You have to be able to communicate those things to her, sure. But if you want to woo her, if you want to gain the sort of emotional leverage that causes her to take an interest in that which did not, which her eyes alone did not fall in love with, well, then you are going to have to put some effort into getting to know what she wants. You have to know what she believes, what she thinks about when she is alone, what she desires for her future. Then you are going to have to organize your own thoughts in some alignment with hers and your own words in some alignment with those thoughts and your own actions in line with those words. You must do this to convince her, first and foremost, that you understand these things then to convince her that you too want those same things, and then that you will give her some approximation of what it is that she desires. But if you have not the vaguest idea what she wants, if you are so enamored of yourself that all that you can think about is the products of your own imagination and of the men that you desire, well, then you are going to be quite limited to women who are very interested in you. And that, in my rather tragic experience, is not what causes a man to marry up, to say the least of it. You know, when I, uh, when I first took an interest in politics was after September 11, 2001. When I saw those towers fall, and I knew that my country was going to war, like, I, I turned on the television, I had not the vaguest idea what these people were talking about. And this frustrated me tremendously. So I began watching the news all of the time. Mostly the Fox News channel, but I made a point from my earliest efforts to understand these things to see what the other channels were saying. I found the liberal news channels intolerable even then, but I made a point to catch a little bit each day anyway. Eventually, I stopped doing that nearly as often. It got to the point that I didn't think what they were saying was that important. I watched the Fox News channel and eventually started listening to conservative talk radio as my exclusive sources of information every single day 
from then until March 9th, 2009, when I found myself in a bit of legal trouble that shattered my understandings of government and politics. And having had my foundations rocked, I became open to new ideas. And this is how I discovered libertarianism, and I became completely immersed in this. But you may recall from the timeline that this was like the heyday of the Tea Party, right? And so there was a great deal of what has been described as like fusionist activism going on with conservatives and libertarians. And, you know, I could speak quite comfortably with my new conservative friends because I was very familiar with Fox News and conservative talk. I understood what they thought about because I was familiar with their media and ideas. I was not nearly so well read as the intellectuals among them. But to the average conservative activist, seven years of me watching Bill O'Reilly every night was quite sufficient to make me appear like a fountain of wisdom. Yet when I, but yet back then, I was quite determined to turn all of these people into libertarians, of course. And so I argued and I argued and I argued. And it was somewhat amazing to, you know, a lot of my libertarian friends that our conservative friends put up with me in the way that they did because these debates did not last nearly so long with them. You see, they had spent the preceding seven years getting their information from Alex Jones and the John Birch Society. So when they spoke, what conservatives heard were deemed conspiracy theories, you see. One sec. <coughs> and conservatives understand this almost as well as they understand that they don't want to be called racist, right? They understand that if they start speaking about conspiracy theories, oh boy, they're going to have a problem. They're going to be called crazy. And so they don't want to talk about that any more than they want to talk about race. I instead spoke to them about the Constitution. Conservatives really like the Constitution, you know. It is what gives them their political legitimacy. And so to pick a powerful and not so random example, the libertarians, you may know, they are not such big fans of the war on drugs. And back then, neither was I. And so I would say to my conservative friends, if the federal government has the power to outlaw drugs, then why did they need a constitutional amendment to ban alcohol? Why did they need a whole other constitutional amendment to overturn that ban if the entire time Congress just had the authority to willy-nilly ban substances at a whim? Just delegate that to the DEA and let it be done for them without a vote of the Congress. Why are they able to do that now? Clearly, this is not within the powers delegated to the Congress, and so it is unconstitutional. Now, it would have done me no good to speak to them about the medicinal benefits of hallucinogenic mushrooms or abstract theories about who owns one's body. But when you speak to a conservative about the Constitution, they listen very closely and do their best to apply their knowledge and reason, and this argument was, in fact, unassailable. Now, some of them simply thought that the Constitution should be amended yet again to ban drugs or that the state and local governments should set harsh drug policy. I did not convert them into libertarianism because I met them where they were and they were at least sympathetic to the argument that the federal government's war on drugs was an abuse of their authority. Now, today, I have little interest in loosening drug laws. It would be all too gentle that the FBI take every fentanyl pusher in my neighborhood to the park where their customers are overdosing and execute them by gunshot on mere probable cause. 
But this is an example of meeting people where they are. And this is the absolute first thing that a political strategist would need to understand to call himself such a thing. <coughs> we don't do that on the alt-right. You, you notice that? The less power, the alt-right, dissident right, whatever you want to call this thing, They don't do that anymore. They do it less now than they did before. The less power they have, the more insistent they are that everybody just has to accept as fact the things that they say. And no matter how many catastrophes and disasters they run into, they just keep on insisting that everybody else should start emulating the behavior that causes them all this pain and suffering and catastrophe. You know, you have to understand that. You know, the reason that successful people are successful is because they do not emulate failure, right? And so if you just keep on insisting that they do, do not be surprised when you make no progress with those people at all. And don't call them politically retarded because, you know, you're getting the you're getting a roles reversal there. So Mr. Davis, he considers it his job or the job of us or whoever it is that's associated with him to racialize the right. And he goes on at some length about this. The video clip that I have here is actually like 10 minutes long. It's like I think it's actually 12 minutes long, but I have specific clips in mind that I will play for you and we will get through them bit by bit. So stand by a second while I pull this clip up. Um, now, let me just go check on our streams here. Say hello to everybody. Uh, real quick, uh, maybe next time sends $3. Maybe if you get a dual turntable DJ mixing board from the 80s, you can do those funny scratchy noises and get the sync in sync. Are you telling me that my audio video is out of sync? Is that what I'm being told? It was... In sync when I started the the thing today. Are you telling me that it's out? Well, I certainly hope I hope that's not the case. Um. Anyway, number to call in, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get on hold and sit there and wait for me to get to you, it's going to be a little while, but you can call two one seven six eight eight one four three three if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you tell, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. I'm being told that the sync is in sync. And the man is making me worry for nothing. Well, for $3, as it were. So thank you very much for the $3, uh, maybe next time. And so uh, back to uh, back to not worrying about technical issues. Because I actually, I, you know, I, I'm not going to trouble you guys with what I, I changed some stuff around today to try to prevent that from being the case, as it were. And I think it's working. I think it's actually, I think it's going pretty well. And so... Let's go and play this. Uh, let's go and play this clip here. There was a recent uh, book that was written by an Italian guy, Guido Taietti. I didn't read the book because it hasn't been translated into English. It's only in Italian. But there was a few reviews in a podcast that was done. There was a review in the Unz Review, I think, and in uh, Countercurrents, and there was a podcast that was done by someone 
with him that was speaking English uh, that Countercurrents put out. And uh, it has some interesting ideas, a lot of ideas that I share. He's a guy from Casa Pound, if you guys have heard of that organization. Uh, and he identified that there's kind of two main fundamental relationships in contemporary political communication. Um, and that, this kind of corresponds to my activist electoralist distinction. Uh, one is you've got the kind of activist sympathizer relationship, and then you've got the kind of political professional voter relationship. Um, now, voters are a low, a low attention span, low information, low agency market, essentially, that's easily manipulated by, you know, the kind of institutionalized forces of professional politics, you know, obviously through the media, but, you know, there's this kind of subterranean architecture, obviously, of NGOs, think tanks, foundations, and so on, that feed into the media, you know, that condition their talking points and align them with, you know, policy agendas and so on, um, that, you know, you can't really mobilize voters against this very successfully because, you know, it's too complex, basically, just as I mentioned before. Now, real quick, too complex for whom exactly? The white race? Of this, I have my doubts. Things like this, where tasks are dismissed for a lack of understanding or a lack of capacity are not, in fact, political strategy, okay? They are defeatism. And there's a lot of that going on here as we're going to get into as we go through this. The system of the transmission of ideas is too complex. He does not know what goes through the minds of voters, etc. This is a problem when you get up in front of a room full of people and tell them that you're here to talk about political strategy. Or about these German opinion polls. Um, and even when you can mobilize voters against it, when you have a quote-unquote populist movement... Uh, we've seen this with Trumpism in the United States. It's so ideologically vapid because it becomes this kind of personal, uh, this personalized attachment. I just like Trump because I've got these like vague sentiments basically that he's standing up for Americans, but then, you know, it can get filled, that kind of ideological vapidity can be just filled in by these, you know, conservative establishments, fake opposition groups to corral the agenda into safe avenues and so on, and it doesn't really, you know, materialize in any kind of meaningful change. Um, and so, you know, working within this professional politician-voter relationship is just very difficult unless you have billions of dollars. Um, you know, we just simply don't have those resources. Now, there's a couple of things to pick apart here. One... The Trump move, it is ideologically vapid. Okay, he says. Well, let's, let's just accept that as true. There are reasons to dispute this, of course. Trump did not gain the support he did by being vapid. But the reason Trump became the president of the United States was because he won an election, which is fundamentally a popularity contest. And this necessarily requires appealing to a very large number of people And if support for your cause is an IQ test and the winning score is 120, then you are going to lose that contest 100% of the time. Trump gained the support of serious intellectuals, as it turns out, because what he said was not vapid at all. He discussed trade, economics, and foreign policy coherently, more coherently than anybody for a very long time, actually. And he inspired very serious people to support his candidacy with this. If he did not obtain that support, he would not have had the sort of social proof required to obtain the, the approval of those vapid, politically retarded masses that our political strategists find so confusing. This is fashionable to say these days on the dissident right. 
that Trump was some kind of, to borrow a phrase, carnival barker. You remember that one? They have adopted the empty, indeed, the vapid attacks that were waged against him by his political opponents in 2016. It's shameful. And in the case of the people who understand what they're doing, and again, I don't know if Mr. Davis does, so I'm not accusing him of being intellectually dishonest because I don't know. But in the case of people who understand what they're doing, it's intellectually dishonest in the extreme because they know that that's not true. But of course, then you have to hold the attention of those masses once you get them. And this is not something you do by being a high-minded intellectual. They do not think nearly so much as they feel, and so to win a large popularity contest, is it has to become something of a cult of personality. And you see this happen with Democrats all the time. They're, they're the saviors of the people, right? They're going to, you know, remember when Barack Obama was elected? The, the one that stands, there's many of them. But you'll recall this video where some woman's like crying in an audience, a black woman, and she's crying because she's not going to have to worry about paying her mortgage anymore. Barack Obama is the same. Barack Obama is going to pay for everything after all, right? All these people who have been keeping you down, I'm going to save you from that. Do you think these people were intellectually convinced by that? No, they were they were promised money and and promised that the people who were keeping them down were going to be harmed. And so you have to create a cult of personality to mobilize, you know, 75, 100 million people to vote for you. That is how Donald Trump became president of the United States. And that is what the left fears about him more than any particular policy agenda. And there's a reason why they compare him to Hitler, of course. Hitler understood this. That is why everything in National Socialist Germany was about the Fuhrer, right? It's not, it's not that all of the citizens read Mein Kampf and became convinced on the merits. It was that this guy came in with this powerful and unusual voice and spoke passionately and people cheered. And when their enemies tried to chase them off the streets, they prevailed in battle. That's not an intellectual movement, actually. It didn't turn out so well in the end, I'm sure you've heard, but it took all the armies of Europe and the Soviet Union and the United States to stop this comparatively small nation who only a few years prior had been an economic catastrophe enslaved to reparations from the prior war. The people of that country were completely devoted to their leader. And if you think this was because there had been a great deal of reading involved, I'm sorry to inform you that this is not how mass movements tend to work. Elite opinion and popular support are different things, and it takes both to govern. You cannot do it with one or the other. That's not how this works. And you cannot make the masses become economists and philosophers just because it suits your purposes. That's not possible. And so the second thing here is this concept that because something requires billions of dollars to do, it is somehow beyond our grasp. Well, that's actually not the case. I understand being short on resources probably as well as anybody at the Patriotic Alternative Conference, as well as anybody who gets on an airplane to go to another country to give a speech for 25 minutes. I understand it at least as well as them, okay? 
if the survival of our people costs billions of dollars, then we might do well to start spending more time reading about the stock market than about conversing with white nationalist leaders in other countries. Might be a, one place that you go with that you know, line of inquiry. We might even go so far as to read a book written by a Jewish person if you really want to think outside the box a little bit. But you see, this is the recurring theme. I don't know what these people are thinking. The media ecosystem is too complex. This costs too much money. And for these reasons, I pursue goals that require none of these. Well, fine. You can do that. Maybe it brings you some kind of edification. And I'm not saying that it's completely worthless. But you're certainly not describing a more certain or more virtuous course than those who work every day to overcome these obstacles. And while Mr. Davis is more respectful of this perception than many online who parrot these kinds of ideas, that is certainly what he is conveying here, whatever his intentions. He's not giving up because he finds a task too difficult. No, he is just endowed with the wisdom to know that these tasks are impossible, unlike those lesser men who toil in vain. He continues. The activist-sympathizer relationship, however, is something that we can get a lot more traction with. And in the activist-sympathizer relationship, um, it's not about trying to win elections. It's not about, you know, it's about trying to change the terms under which the political discourse within which elections are even conducted um, are set. Uh, so, you know, we can look at like models for this, like for example, feminism. There's no feminist party that's running any of our countries that, you know, won 51% of the vote and formed government. Um, but obviously feminism has won. It's pretty much dominating the institutions of every major Western country, all the major political parties. Uh, that's an activist movement. It didn't try to go out and win elections and form a, a feminist political movement that would contest for local council districts or something. It formed an organized uh, activist pressure movement uh, that was able to kind of plug itself into the political establishment and change the discourse around women's rights or whatever. And, you know, we've seen the results. Okay. But this is really not a description of what feminism did. If you're at all familiar with the phenomenon, this should really stand out to you as, as staggeringly obvious. Feminism did involve itself with politics. As a matter of fact, like right from the beginning, most notably in pushing for women's suffrage in the first place. The idea that feminism was not political. I mean, the fact that we have a 19th Amendment should tell you something about this. It necessarily had to deal with things other than their capacity to vote before women could vote. But this was among the first of their goals. And since then, politicians have had no choice but to consider the opinions of that half of the population. And while feminist ideas, especially those of latter waves, are bizarre and not at all representative of how women think, what gained them the traction they did was in promising electoral results for politicians. This is so obvious, it's almost confusing that he would have chosen such a poor example, but there's more. And the same model you can see with environmentalism, with you know gay rights, etc. And I think this is the kind of model that we should look to more when thinking about who we are and what, we, or what we're doing as you know, white advocates. Um, now, I just my notes here. So I think, 
As well, an another idea that I think is quite useful for kind of understanding what we're doing here um, and, and how to kind of stay the course is what I call having a one-dimensional framing or one-dimensional politics, which in a nutshell is reducing politics to a pro-white, anti-white polarity, trying to you know, analyze every issue through the lens of race, a kind of race reductionism. You know, you talk, Marxists talk about class reductionism. Everything is really about proletariat versus bourgeoisie or whatever. We should base, not obviously not be like Marxists, but we should do the same thing, but with race, I believe. Break every issue down. So the gentleman earlier was speaking about climate change and about how, well, you know, climate change, you know, is basically just a way to transfer resources from, you know, white countries to non-white countries, frankly. That's what the policies actually are. Whatever your position is on, on climate change, we should talk about it like that rather than simply talking about climate change is fake and you've got all these boomer conservatives railing against it. Uh, but no one kind of points out the elephant in the room, which is that it's it's very clearly an anti-white agenda. Um, and yeah. just real quick, I mean, you know, the derisive the derisive talk about the boomer conservative, right? And this becomes especially important because as he gets into this, he he's about to tell you that he we need to map this racial divide onto the left-right divide, which in my view is actually a coherent thing to do as we'll address. But like throughout this thing, he's ta he's talking about people in these derisive terms, like, oh, you know, these boomer conservatives saying it's fake. Well, if it's an anti-white agenda and it's fake, you know, pointing out that this is a complete sham might be worth doing. And it's not like it, you, you dismiss people for saying, well, what do you care if it's fake? That's not, you know, that's not savvy in my view. Um, you know, and, and this is clear. I, I think also the, this polarity, we need to map it onto the left-right distinction. A lot of people, myself included, would describe themselves at one point or another as a third positionist, and we've got to transcend the left-right distinction and so on. I think this kind of thinking, what I call like ideological hipsterism, which I've been as guilty of as anyone in, in the past, is a waste of energy and a waste of time, and it just confuses people. We know voters are that stupid. The masses are that stupid that, the you know, the majority of Germans against mass immigration, as I said, they can't even select the right party to vote for. Um, going on about third positionism and, you know, uh, bickering about, you know, what's real fascism or something, you know, it might be ed intellectually edifying, but it's not actually going to get anywhere. We need to have uh, an approach that cuts through the bullshit uh, in an intellectually defensible way. I'm sorry about the BS there. The way, nevertheless, that can map onto the real polarization that people feel every day, which is a left-right polarization, particularly, I think, in the United States and in the Anglosphere, because we have these two-party systems. Uh, I've noticed this in Australia, especially since COVID, this kind of social mapping of leftists and right-wingers that didn't really exist 10 years ago, where, you know, social groups are getting split apart because, you know, people that are more conservative, whatever that means, can't handle being around uh, leftists anymore and vice versa. Um, and this is a good thing, because it's clear that the left's number one priority is the anti-white agenda. You know, there's literally no concern that they have that they won't immediately toss or compromise if it conflicts with the, uh, you know, their anti-white goals. Now, you know, so this I obviously think is useful, but the thing to take into consideration here, I'd say, is if you want to map yourself onto the right, you can't make them your enemy, which is what this guy keeps on doing. And there's a lot of that going on here. He mocked earlier when we talked about the, the opinion polls in Germany, like the idea that people will vote based on not wanting their taxes to go up. Like, oh, what's wrong with you? 
as if how much of their income is taken away by this government that's destroying them is somehow, you know, irrelevant to people with families. Later on, he's going to say that he's more on the socialist side. And you cannot, like, overestimate the the toxicity of that to right-wing people, at least in the United States. The socialists are the enemy, don't you know? Like, that's the Soviet Union. <laughs> that's communism, as far as they're concerned. And I understand that you're in a room full of like-minded people and, you know, and you're just expressing your honest views and, you know, God bless you, whatever. But, like... <clears throat> This is what I'm talking about, that the, the dissident right thinks, oh, well, you know, we're this we're this tiny political fringe minority and we're so confident of our ideas that we'll just insist that they have to, you know, subsume the ideas of everybody else. And if they don't do that, we'll just we'll just call them dumb. Well, this is what the libertarians have done, right? The libertarians say that you're a statist and you're immoral if you don't go along with the non-aggression principle. And, you know, there's arguments to be made that the libertarians have completely dominated the world, right? Now we live in the world where, you know, gay marijuana farmers can, uh, uh, married gay marijuana farmers can guard their crops with AR-15s or whatever. You know, you can't defend yourself against a rioter, but that's, you know, a small price to pay for gay marriage and marijuana, right? (coughs) But, you know, the libertarians did not dominate our politics by being uncompromising radicals, as it turns out, right? It, it, it came as a consequence of them saying like, okay, well, you know, you'll keep your social security and you'll keep your uh, your wars and you'll, you'll keep uh, the, all of these toxic, your income tax. We're going to back off on all those things. Just give us gay marriage and marijuana, you know? And so the libertarians, that's how they got, you know, what they've gotten. And they got it with the Republican Party, not with the LP, of course. So, you know, if you want to map yourself on to the right, you, you're not you're not you're actually not doing this. And it's frustrating for me, because if you listen to this show, you know that him and I more or less see eye to eye on what he's saying here that, OK, you know, and, and so does Pat Buchanan. Right. It's not a new idea, by the way. You know, Pat Buchanan in Suicide of a Superpower, which he wrote, I believe, was 2011. You know, he, he wrote, has a chapter called the White Party, and he says the Republican Party is the White Party. And there's actually, you know, there's a lot of evidence to support that theory. So Mr. Davis continues. You saw this with uh, COVID in the United States. COVID's this big problem. We've got to lock down. Everyone's got to, you know, don't go in public or whatever. Oh, but, you know, Black Lives Matter want to do marches now because George Floyd uh, had a drug overdose. So now everyone in the streets. Um, the real public health crisis is is racism, you know. Uh, you know, and we see this on, on so many issues, you know, environmentalism is really bad, global warming, we've got too many emissions, let's just import another million Pakistanis that are going to burn as much coal as possible when they get here, uh, because their carbon f- footprint doesn't matter, because if you think it does, you're racist. Um, you know, feminism, we, there's a rape culture, let's import a bunch of Pakistani rape gangs and, you know, you, know, you guys get the message. Um, so... That polarity already exists. And another hot take that I want to give you is that the left are the real racists, uh, but not in the way that Dinesh D'Souza describes it, in the sense that the left hate white people, obviously, right? They are actually racist. Where conservatives, they're not racist. That's the problem. I wish the right were the real racists. That's our job, uh, is to make that happen. Um, and, and that's key, because 
you know, we're not really going to be able to convert leftists. Leftists are already aware of race. They're fully aware of race and they've chosen the other side. Where conservatives are sleepwalking through reality. Like they just don't, like literally they are colorblind. Um, and they can't perceive reality as a result of it because there's these mental blocks put in the heads of so many people through, you know, the way that people have been conditioned by our culture. Our job is to open their eyes to race. Once you see it, you know, you see it everywhere, then all of a sudden the political, uh, you know, the political landscape makes sense. And if someone is already identifying on the right, unless they, it's because they, ha they have an Asian girlfriend or wife or something or, the, or whatever that's really holding them back from embracing racial identitarianism, if they're just a normal white person who, you know, sees themselves as right wing and they're sick of the tranny nonsense and all the immigrants and so on, you know, once they see it, they can't unsee it. And then they're on our side. And that's really, that's the activist sympathizer relationship. Our job is developing a larger okay so you know he's got a very strong point here and it baffles me here that the 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 strength of his point seems to be lost on him as you're going to see momentarily okay i'm going to play the next clip to show you what i mean but remember that i agree with him in this moment before he turns around and in my view wrecks it and larger cadre of sympathizers that'll then permeate social institutions and that's how you get real change because you know the, uh, that's what the left did. The left didn't win opinion polls. They didn't, you know, get one day to 51% of the population now thinks that transgenderism is real and not a mental illness. Now we can do the trans agenda. No, they knew that their ideas were unpopular, but they built a cadre of sympathizers with a focused and direct ideology. And look where that's got them. Um, well, hang on a second. So I think that needs to be the central focus of, of what we're doing, and I think it already is for the people in this room largely, from what I can tell. Uh, but uh, I think it's an important thing to maintain in our minds and to talk about clearly to defend you know, what we're doing here. Um, and so you, you actually don't need to make race the most salient factor in a person's politics, okay? This is something that... <coughs> it was sort of... It was, I, I, I was reluctant to accept this myself. But, you know, first of all, the left did win opinion polls, okay? They won opinion polls not by saying, hey, they didn't come out and tell you, hi, nice to meet you, I'm the Democrat Party, in 30 years we're going to sterilize your children with drugs and surgery. They didn't do that. They did win opinion polls. And they entirely took over the government and all the apparatus of media and corporate life and they did that by persuading people that they shared their values and then as a consequence of invading everything by by so convincing people of this then they started to you know the transvaluation of all values right that's exactly what the left did and then once they were completely in control of all the cultural levels levers then they were like yeah you know Gender is a social construct. Gender is, you know, uh, uh, between the ears. Sex is between the legs. And we'll just we'll just swap that stuff between the legs around and we'll be all set, right? That's something they did after decades of manipulating public opinion. It's not something that they came out and did. Barack Obama in 2008 said that marriage is between one man and one woman. He did not say that your child should be drugged and mutilated because the kindergarten teacher read them a weirdo book, right? He did not say that. That was something that came much later. <clears throat> and it came as a consequence of winning elections and wielding political power 
to great effect, as a matter of fact, and they could not have done it otherwise. But you don't need to make race the most salient factor in a person's politics. You don't need to radicalize them or racialize them. They just need to know a few basic facts about IQ and hormones and how these traits are transmitted genetically and grouped along racial lines due to evolutionary pressures. These are actually, like, you don't have to read all of Charles Murray to get this. They don't need to make it the central focus of their lives. If they understand that there is such a thing as evolutionary psychology and they are made to understand that it is not, as it has been called, Nazi pseudoscience, then the very legitimacy of the phrase evolutionary psychology tells them that personality traits are transmitted genetically and that this explains all of our demographic disparities. And this totally destroys the narratives of white supremacy pervaded by the left. You know, you mentioned before, once they see it, they cannot unsee it, as he says. So you don't have to get these people into like a totally racialized, race-centric worldview. They don't want that. Like, listen to what they're saying. Listen to what they're saying and stop ignoring what they want. That's not what they want. The left wants that and they don't want it. All they need to understand is that this is a component of a very complex political system, okay? If you are monomaniacally focused on that one thing and they are not, you know, these people appropriately see you as the weirdo ideologue, okay? You're the one with the narrow focus that is excluding all the other issues that they think are relevant and which they have very good reason for thinking are very relevant. They are very concerned about whether the government takes a tenth or a quarter or a third or a half or more of their income. And when you treat this as some kind of like silly, unimportant detail, you look like a fool to them. It's not... (laughs) It's not that they don't understand you. They understand you perfectly fine. You're telling them all that they need to know about you. That you don't think tax rates matter tells them everything that they need to know about you. They're appropriately dismissing what you say when you do that. He mentions at another point that, you know, getting mixed up in foreign policy, the the war in Ukraine, for example. (coughs) Well, you know, if you think that people don't care about whether a war is waged or who wins the war or whether we're paying for the war or not. You know, they don't presume that you're above the fray when you say that they they presume you're below the intellectual level of the conversation. And they come to that conclusion quite appropriately, like they're not politically retarded for believing that. And he continues. Now. So the other component of this is I think our message to the, the broadly self-identified right is that you know, we are the only real, true foundational opposition to the leftist paradigm and left, like leftists in general, leftist power. And they make it clear, leftists do our job for us. They identify us as their main enemy and uh, you know, they make it very clear what they stand for. And so if someone's already agreeing that, well, man, these lefties and their agenda, it's horrible what they're doing. 
it's not that much of a leap to say, okay, well, we're the only real opposition, so what do you want? Do you want uh, total victory over them? Well, that's only going to occur if we are elevated. Um, teaching the right wing to stop cancelling people for being too right wing, basically, is, is, is a large portion of our job. Um, and you can already see this process starting to gradually occur, I think, across the Anglosphere in conservative media world, uh, where there's more and more acquiescence to a lot of uh, racial talking points um, and, and shifting tides in the discourse because of the work that's been done since, you know, what, like 2015, the emergence of the alt-right to today. Uh now, I, I've said this a million times, and I'll say it again because people seem to forget this too often. The alt-right made inroads with conservatives in 2015 and 2016 because of Donald Trump. Because of Donald Trump. And now Mr. Davis is on a stage in the United Kingdom talking about the inroads that the alt-right made now resulting in the, the positive effects that he's describing where conservatives are like, hey, you know, you can't you can't go shut everybody down just because you disagree with them. Now, it'd be nice if they had figured this out six years ago, obviously. Right. It'd be nice if I still had a PayPal account. But better late than never. And, you know, I was among those who was, you know, prepared to fall on his sword to, you know, create some positive change. And here we find ourselves all the better. OK. But people keep on forgetting this, that the way that the alt-right made those inroads that are creating the positive effects that he's now describing was by riding the Trump train. And now they're like, oh, you know, Trump is, uh, you know, an agent of the Jews or whatever, you know, silly thing that they, you know, that, that makes them feel intellectually and morally superior to do. And while they're doing that, their their political power is fading very, very rapidly. Um, you know, I think we need to humanize a lot of these people in the conservative movement. They, it, it, some people get th th this kind of mentality that everybody in the entire conservative movement is like like some kind of agent that's getting paid off by like these like networks of intelligence agencies uh, or and Mossad has like a video of them like raping a three-year-old and they'll never come around at any talking point or never make any adjustments to their position. And whilst we should hate them and we should call them out as fake opposition, I think this is a strategic misstep. Our pressure actually does tell. There's a lot of people in the conservative movement who actually their minds can be changed and they can become more radical over time. We should have, uh, I think, faith in our capacity to transform the culture, not support the conservative party, obviously. We're in the kind of realm of activism here. More about changing attitudes, uh, changing the Overton window, so to speak, where it lands in, in the kind of uh, you know, right-wing cultural space. I think uh, that's an area where we're going to win, uh, regardless, even if we do a bad job. We have so much momentum there, it's already happening. As uh, Tony mentioned, like our idea, it's time has come and it's somewhat inevitable. Um, but I think so much of our work is about accelerating that kind of transformation of the right, the racializing of the right. And so, you know, hopefully the people that he's trying to win over are not, you know, watching him stand on a stage and saying that, yeah, we should hate them, you know. Something tells me most of them are not, so he's fortunate for this fact, and I don't figure he's going to be running for office anytime soon, so, you know, he can get away with that maybe. <clears throat> but, you know, when I was, uh, when I when I didn't have internet access, you know, I read uh, William F. Buckley's God and Man at Yale. 
I read Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind. I read, um, I think it's, I want to say Randy Weaver, but now I'm wondering if that's somebody else. Um, um, Ideas Have Consequences. I I read a lot of conservative books. I read The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism by Matthew Continetti, who worked for like the American Enterprise Institute and married Bill Kristol's daughter, okay? (laughs) I read I read Irving Kristol's book, The Neoconservative Persuasion. As a matter of fact, you know what? I'll bring up real quick. Well, let me play. The, I'm going to play one more clip from him before I do this. And I'm actually, I'm going to pull up to you a, a letter that I actually wrote to somebody. Uh, because it, it, to, to demonstrate that the idea that I'm talking about here is really not fundamentally about him. It's, it's something that I figured out a while back. You know, a lot of discussion at one point, I would say like, <laughs> 2018, 2019, in the broad online scene, debating should we be Nazbols, should we should we be racist liberals? You know, do white people want to be free market or do white people want to have socialism? And it's like, you know, I don't really give. You know, I just want to win. You know, we can figure that out later. Um, a lot of these things actually are quite counterproductive. Um, you know, I would say probably I'm probably more on the socialist side. But you know, if if we can win. I don't give it about the economic policy. I don't give it about the foreign policy. I, I just care about white people winning. Um, so. And so, you know, look, don't get me wrong, okay? I, I am, uh, we try not to centralize the show on racial themes here at Surreal Politiques, okay? There's good reasons for doing that, aside from the fact that It ticks off people that we do business with. But part of the reason that I that I am comfortable doing that on an intellectual level is because it avoids getting caught in traps like what he just said. Okay, like, oh, I don't care about the economic policy. I don't care about the foreign policy. All I care about is my ethnic group winning. Well, these things are not disconnected, sir. Okay, like if you think that you can have that you can win with a two percent sales tax or a ninety nine percent income tax, and it's all just the same, you know, don't don't talk to me about philosophy and strategy. Like that's not a serious proposal. If you don't think that foreign policy matters to the winning your people winning, well, you know, you could lose a war. Your people could be wiped out in a in a mushroom cloud and a nuclear blast. That's what happens when you're not concerned about foreign policy, especially right now. I mean, we're on the brink of World War III. So if you go and you talk to serious people and you're like, look, I don't care about taxes. I don't care about war. All I care about is race. <laughs> you should really hope our politics don't get to that point you know what i mean you should really hope so and the thing is this too you know i understand why like race becomes a very salient component of our politics on account of what well becomes a salient component of our politics on account of the diversity that's imposed upon us okay so we have this we have this these this collection of warring tribes in white countries in america and europe whatever okay and these people are basically, you know, warring over the scraps of the carcass that is the country that's really no longer viable, you know, if we face it ultimately. 
And so now there's like this contest on for the spoils, right? Well, that's not a healthy politics, okay? And serious people understand that that's not healthy. Whether they understand all that led up to it, that's another question. But serious people understand that anybody moving towards that, they're they're actually not pursuing a better course than a healthy politics, okay? A healthy politics is we don't have this problem of racial grievances distorting all of the things that we care about, okay? We have meaningful discussions about foreign policy and economics and cultural matters and how we educate our children because we're not fending off the other racial group all the time. That's a healthy politics. And when you say, hey, all of the other things that you care about, what's wrong with you, pal? They're like, what's wrong with you? And they're right. And the, and the dissident right, the alt-right, white national, whatever that movement wants to call itself and whatever shakes out from the, you know, the mess that it is now, anything that goes on to do something of significance is going to figure that out and, and, and defeat this that we just witnessed. <clears throat> the people who insist that there's a, a racial issue are wrong. That's actually not an accurate description of our politics. We have a, a vast apparatus of government that interferes with every aspect of the human condition. And the ways that it's doing that are very dangerous and destructive. And, you know, you can, you can get a certain amount of, like, popular support by saying, hey, this group is a problem for us, okay? Like, you know, the, you know liberals talk about this all the time, like it's some kind of, like, you know, dictatorial manipulation tactic and fine, whatever. Like, just accept that it is, you know, why bother arguing about it? But, like... <clears throat> But it's not just that, right? It's you can you can wield support in this way. You say, hey, this group that you can identify yourself as a part of has a threat from the outside group, and then we need to get together to fend the outside group off, okay? You can do that, and you can uh, obtain a certain amount of political support this way. But in the course of that, you're going to have to figure out, you know, who's who within that group, and those people are going to have to have the debates over the things that are actually of substance, right? And if one of you says that, we can have a, a universal basic income guarantee and socialized health care. And the other one says that's economically incoherent and you're going to deform prices like a, a legitimate debate ensues there. And if you say the guy who wants to debate me on economics is not looking out for the best interests of our race, then people who are capable of understanding the depths of our politics are going to see you as somebody who's actually not up to the level of conversation that's necessary to engage in this exercise. <coughs> And what you end up with in that situation, unfortunately, and we see this all the time, you know, people in the dissident right are constantly complaining about other people in the dissident right. I, I'm not, you know, making a controversial point here to say this. They're always like, this guy's a bad guy, this guy's a bad guy. And I do this, I try to keep this to a minimum, but believe me, I notice it more often than I say it, okay? Other people notice this too, and they look at it and they're like, this is a bunch of like scumbags. What do I want anything to do with them? They're not good people, and they don't achieve outcomes that I wish to achieve for myself. All of their outcomes are catastrophic, and I, like, I actually aspire towards higher things than they, they're capable of. 
<clears throat> so they don't care about the things that I care about. They're not accomplishing the things that I want to accomplish. What, why would I emulate their behavior? And if you, if you think that you can intellectualize that away or racialize that away, then, you know, you're going to be doing, you're going to waste a lot of time and effort, frankly. <clears throat> They see this, and remember, you'll remember the Tucker Carlson thing, okay? So, like, Tucker Carlson came on, on the Adam Carolla show and was like, you know, some guy's going to go and say that he represents white people, and I'm going to tell him to F off. And everybody's like, oh, screw you, Carlson. And I was like, you know, there's a lot of people claiming to speak on behalf of white people right now that I, I wouldn't want to stand in the same room as. Are you crazy? Like, yeah, somebody just comes up and says, I speak for white people. I'm like, well, you know, you're going to have to actually, you're going to have to come up with something more intellectually stimulating than that. Sorry. Thank you very much. There's a time when Richard Spencer thought he spoke for white people. And the other day, he's on Twitter saying that there's something good about the Lee Monument being melted, right? You got a lot of people who have claimed to speak on behalf of white people who turned around and did really bad things. So, like, that's actually the result of what he's saying. Like, okay, forget about all the things that you think are important. Just focus on, you know, monomaniacally on this one thing. Well, no. There is not a race issue. There are many issues, and race deforms all of them. And if you're not up to the task of engaging on those subjects, then actually the, the people are going to reject your proposals, and they're going to do so appropriately. That's my view of it in any case. If you have a different view of it, I'd love to hear from you at 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to, so please do give us a call. <clears throat> Let's see here. Let's go check on people. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you'd like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. What was the other thing I was going to bring up here? Oh, I said I was going to bring up this letter. Okay, I'll do that. Hang on a second. Let me go put this thing back here. And I'll bring up this letter. <coughs> this is a correspondence that I sent to a man by the name of Ian Freeman. Freeman. And uh, you might recall, we interviewed him, I believe it was episode 20 or 21 of stage one of Surreal Politiques. And it was uh, one of my proudest professional accomplishments, actually, was my interview of my radio colleague, Ian Freeman. And we go way back, me and him. And I recently said to him in a letter that I sent to him at the um, Merrimack County Correctional Facility. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm not going to read this whole thing to you. Maybe I should. It's only four pages. Maybe I'll just read the whole letter. Um. All right. My dear friend Ian, I was glad to receive your reply and also glad, if unsurprised, to find you seeming in better spirits than most men would be in your position. I imagine by now you have received the interview transcript I sent, which had been dispatched before I had the chance to read your letter. What you say about the federal block being the adult block reaches me as good news, if largely unsurprising. While I was held at Stratford, they did not separate the local cases from the federal cases, and so I was in the decidedly mixed company of dope fiends in withdrawal and kingpins not soon to leave. Once shipped to the federal system, those one comes into contact with tend to be of a higher caliber, and I suspect you may discover this to be your own experience. 
Law enforcement, of course, has the responsibility of cleaning up the nuisances off the streets, such as the junkies who just can't stop smashing windows to steal change. Sharing a cell with one of these types as they vomit and lose control of their other bodily functions makes for a rough night. I have remarked many a time that I'd sooner spend my days with killers and bank robbers than with such low-order creatures, and the feds, having the luxury of being more selective in their targeting, tend to acquire these more sophisticated criminals, as well as folks like yourself who are not criminals at all. While it is, needless to say, unfortunate to see non-criminals thrown into cages, it is for those of us who must have convicts as neighbors an altogether less troubling experience to be around people whose activities were not so disruptive to daily life outside that local law enforcement felt compelled to intervene before the feds got there. <coughs> um, I, this is about a book that I sent them. Oh, you know what? This is the wrong letter. This is not even what I meant to read to you. I'm sorry. Hang on a second. This is not the red letter that I even meant to read. I meant to read to you something much earlier. Um, let me scroll ahead. I'm sorry. Now that I read that whole thing, I don't want to read this whole letter to you. This one's a little bit longer. Okay. <clears throat> if you come out in six years believing the same things you believe today, I'll consider this a very sad thing. Not because I disagree with your views, though I do, but because I would consider it a lost opportunity for you to not have embarked upon the sort of intellectual journey that cannot help but alter one's perspective. These two things, patience and the time to read things I would not have otherwise considered, as well as meeting the sort of people I would not have otherwise met, did much to teach me about perception as such. This did wonders for my humility. Men who take up the sort of profession we have and consider themselves fit to say how the world ought to be more generally have a certain tendency to presume we know more than we do. I'll again note you may suffer less of this pathology than I, but I do not suspect you are immune to this. As I write this, it occurs to me that you were always better at considering the experience of others than I was. Having gotten better at this myself in the last few years, I have come to appreciate more thoroughly the value of this capacity. But what I discovered was a matter of degree, just how completely different experience can make one's understanding of the world. I long have considered the concept of objective reality to be an obvious truth. I still do consider this to be the case. What has changed my view about this is its salience, at least in the arena of politics and social change more broadly. One cannot simply dismiss the views of others as wrong or in need of changing or of insignificant value. These views are, in fact, constituent elements of the reality one navigates. If people believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that is reality so far as they are concerned. Same if they believe he was a prophet or that he is boiling in excrement or in hell with his whore mother. We, as members of a species of creature that is uniquely and innately political, are met with a choice of how to navigate such views and, of course, ones far more pertinent to daily life. Perhaps I am just tired, but I have come to conclude that changing the views of others, at least in dramatic ways, is a largely futile exercise. I do not think it immodest to say that I have greater persuasive powers than the average citizen. I have radically altered the views of what could fairly be described as many people. But even at this, it numbers in the thousands, and this could be considered a very significant accomplishment, yet of perfect insignificance politically. Met with this realization alone with my own thoughts too often, I found it was of substantially greater utility to understand those views. 
<clears throat> and so I go on at some length here. But this is what I'm talking about that like, and I wrote this on, this was composed on October 7th, okay? So this is before I come into contact with this guy's video. I'm not making this up for the occasion. When I was locked up, I was reading Vladimir Lenin. I was reading Irving Crystal. I was reading, you know, Matthew Continetti, all right? And so I wanted to try to understand these other views that I didn't understand. And, you know, even, you know, I mentioned the Tea Party and stuff earlier. Like, I went and I got involved with the Tea Party, and I became very worried about communism, right? Well, it took me a little while to get to Lenin, but I read Karl Marx right away, you know? I read the Communist Manifesto. I read Das Kapital. I didn't understand most of it at the time, but I read it. I read Rules for Radicals. I read The Coming Insurrection. I read a lot of left-wing books, like, early in my political education. <clears throat> I didn't just read what conservatives had to say about communism. I went and I read the source material. Now, what's kind of funny is that, you know, there's some, there's, there's some guy out there. I'm not going to give him the name recognition of mentioning it, but you know, there's some guy out there who who says, oh, because I read Alexander Dugan while I was in prison, <laughs> that this is evidence of me being a Duganist. You know, well, you must think very strongly of Alexander Dugan's words to believe that. that like, oh, you know, if you read Dugan, that must mean that you believe the things that he believes. Well, that's not my experience with reading books, actually. You know, I read Karl Marx, I read Vladimir Lenin, and I did not turn around and become a communist for sure. You know, I actually thought that, you know, the fourth political theory was, you know, sort of a it was a powerful critique of leftism, but I don't think that it came to a lot of very useful conclusions beyond that, truth be told. <clears throat> and so, like, I found that, you know, amusing in the extreme. But, you know, this is like people who think, oh, you read Mein Kampf, you must be a Nazi. Oh, well, you must think very highly of Adolf Hitler, don't you? But no, he's a monster, you know. Well, if you think that everybody who reads this book becomes a Nazi, that tells you something about what you think of the quality of the material. So, you read whatever you want. I will uh, keep on coming and talking to you for uh, two and four and six hours a week, depending on what your listening habits are like. We do this every Monday at 9.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Wednesday, uh, you get extra, extra, extra close access to me on the uh, on the member it's only video chat. We do a little video conference. And I would invite you to join us for that. You go over to serialpolitics.com slash join and become a member there. If you use code AGENDA33, you'll get 33% off your first three months. That'll come make it down to $6.70 for the first three months, e each month for the first three months. And if you do that, then you go to surrealpolitics.com slash shop, and then you can get all the, the, uh, the merch that we sell at a really deep discount. And that's a great idea. It's math. You can argue with math. Um, and then, of course, Friday, we come back for the uncensored production. And, like, I have just completely stopped apologizing for the Fs. Like, I don't even care anymore. So we have a lot of fun on the Radical Agenda is the name of that show. And it's basically, uh, you know, if you guys are watching on Odyssey, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who watch and listen elsewhere, you know, if you're watching on Rumble, you don't get the Radical Agenda. We're, you know, we're, we don't want to get kicked off of uh, Rumble. So you should get on my mailing list at ChristopherCantwell.net slash subscribe, and that will get you access to everything that I do. You'll be informed, really well informed, provided that your, you know, your email provider doesn't bounce my emails or put them in your spam trap, which you should definitely keep track of and complain if they do. And so if you do all of those things, if you had done all those things before, then you would know <coughs> already that my birthday is coming up. It's November 12th. 
I'm going to be 43 years old, and uh, it's great. I love getting older. I know you do too. Uh, it's great. Uh, uh, dying very slowly, I think, is, is kind of the way that you describe this in some circles. <laughs> No, it's you know I'm I'm uh, I'm okay, and so the uh, I'm not uh, I'm not having a you know midlife crisis or anything. I'm set. The uh, but this is the first birthday that I've enjoyed in freedom for a while, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, of course, if you want to buy me a present, you can do that, and I make it really easy. As a matter of fact, first of all, you just like give me cash. You do the ChristopherCantwell.net/slash/donate. I'll tell you how like to do all of that. It's very easy to give me money. I make it very easy to pay me. Um, but I also make it easy to buy me presents. So if you go to ChristopherCantwell.net slash gifting, G-I-F-T-I-N-G, I actually wrote 2,300 words, which will help you uh, figure all of that out. So like I have the main public Amazon wish list, and then I actually made like some other wish lists. I have a wishlist.com wish list and a new egg wish list. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, I made extra Amazon wish lists for like different things. And they're all described there. I got like my measurements. If you want to, I have like, you could buy me clothes and like, I got my exact measurements. Like I have the screenshot from my health app and I do, I have the, I have the rent Renfo R E N P H O. You should get this thing by the way. <clears throat> I have the Renfo health app and I have the Bluetooth tape measure. So I literally took all of my body measurements and put them into the app and I'd keep track of these things because, you know, I'm trying to change the shape of my body and I'm succeeding at that by the way. And so um, the, the exact measurements are actually there and you perverts asking about that one measurement. You're, you're, you're at, get your minds out of the gutter. I didn't do that. That has nothing to do with my clothes. You people are sick. So, uh, all those things, ChristopherCantwell.net slash subscribe, get you on the email newsletter, ChristopherCantwell.net slash donate. You can fork over your shekels, ChristopherCantwell.net slash gifting. You can give me presents, ChristopherCantwell.net slash how can I help? You know, if you want to volunteer time and talent, all those different things. It's really just, I mean, the the opportunities for you to participate in this great thing of ours, they are just, they border on limitless. I mean, it, I mean, there's probably limits, but we're not going to find them anytime soon. So go ahead, do all of those things, and we'll be back Wednesday and again Friday, and then we'll be back here again Monday for Surreal Polities, because how could we even dare to think about missing an episode of this? We're having such a great time. Uh, you know... You guys want to get a hold of Mr. Davis? You want to tell him that uh, I was talking about him? Uh, you guys want to see a debate go on? Go tell him that. You know, uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe uh, maybe him and I will have a talk. We'll see how, see how it goes. I'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.